1: All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. Corporate sponsors may from time to time be the subject of buy and or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks newsletter. However, as host of Turning Hard Times into Good Times, Jay Taylor retains the right to provide objective opinions on behalf of subscribers and to his (laughs) listeners. audience regardless of sponsorship. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and D. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor.
3: Welcome, I am your host Jay Taylor. I'm also the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy and Tech Stocks newsletter. You can learn more about that at miningstocks.com. Well, so far this year we're having a very, very good year where our model portfolio or our hypothetical model portfolio, I should say, is up 53% and really what the biggest winner so far is the uranium sector. Well, that had been so depressed previously, but it's up 139% on average this year. Uh our Speculative mining shares, those exploration companies are up 87%. Oil and gas stocks are up 83%. And our Progress A companies, those are the producers, are up about 48%. So we're having a good year, but we're certainly not resting on our laurels. We remember what happened last summer, the uh, sudden and catastrophic plunge in the markets that we were very concerned about. And quite frankly, we're very concerned that that could happen again because we do not see, for reasons we'll talk about later, uh, see any real uh, ultimate demand and strength in the global economy at this point in time. We're watching, I am personally watching the work every day of Dr. Robert McHugh, also my friend and colleague here, Roger Wiegand, a- as well as Lena Monasaridis, both uh, a good technical analyst who can provide a lot of good information for us. Uh, we'll be talking in my final segment this week about the reasons, uh, things I think you need to do to protect yourself for what's to come. But right now, I want to turn to my regular weekly guest, and that is, uh, that, that is uh, Lena and Roger and Chen. First, Chen, who's going to give us a uh, perspective on the markets in China. Chen?
4: Yes. Hi, Jay. How are you?
3: I'm well, thanks. What's happening? What can you tell us about what's going on in China these days?
4: Yeah, I heard in China, housing boom, uh, start to come back again. Um, people are camping out, uh, waiting to buy new homes. And I read one article. There are 3,000 people show up to buy, uh, to fight for 100 homes available wow. in, in central China. And then in, in the land value in, in Beijing already exceeded uh, 2007. So, uh, Chen, is
3: this occurring because of loan demand? Because people are flush with cash? What's what's happening there?
4: Right, because of China has a high saving rate, and then uh, people are very scared about this uh, government printing money. Mm-hmm. And then they see the, the money put in the bank, there's a very low interest. Mm-hmm. So they are fighting fighting for the hard asset. Basically, house is part of hard asset. Sure. China, you know, appreciate another is gold. Sure. So I think that this move with gold, maybe, you know, I, I'm just speculating also with, uh, you know, gold buying from uh, Chinese citizens.
3: Sure. Are we going to get through a thousand here, Chen? Finally, and stay above?
4: Yeah, I think that this looks. Uh, there's, you know, there's no triple bottom, no triple tops, you mm-hmm. know, and this um, this going to blow through one thousand. I think will stay high there for a foreseeable future. Well, that's <laughs> good, you know,
3: Chen. Top. You had a you had a stock idea, gold stock that I know you're very hot on. You want to tell our listeners about that?
4: Yeah, it's Apollo Gold. Actually, I mentioned on this radio show a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I was buying like 28, 29 cents, I remember, and it just came out with fantastic results. Uh, they declare commercial production, and it, and their strip ratio actually is much lower. It, instead of 1.1 1. 1 to 7, it is reduced 1 to 4, which means their costs are coming down. Mm-hmm. And everything is on schedule on time. So I, I'm very excited about that. So I actually bought more today, even though it, it rose more than actually more than double. Since my initial recommendation on my newsletter, H- has the stock performed well on that news today?
3: No, uh, it hasn't. Okay, so people so are
4: doubting on the news. So you see uh, a good uh,
3: buying opportunity here because I know you think these guys can produce more gold than they're projecting,
4: perhaps. Oh yeah, yeah. Just the way they are doing, you know, they 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 they, they are you know very conservative, and, and you know they 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 can produce and probably produce high much more gold and then lower cost and the protection.
3: Okay, uh, Chen, what's the symbol on
4: Apollo gold? Apollo gold on the MX is AGT and on the Toronto uh, is APG.
3: Okay. Very good, Chen. Well, thank you. We're, you know, there's just always a time constraint. We could talk for y- with you a lot longer, but we've got to turn next to Roger Wiegand. Roger you there. Roger's here. Roger, uh, you're going to give us a hot commodity idea today, are you not? We lost Roger. I think Roger was saying that um, that the Chinese, in essence, were are very very concerned right now about um, they're very concerned about the dollar. As Chen was saying, actually, a few minutes ago, Chen was talking about uh, the Chinese going out and getting rid of uh, their dollars and wanting to buy real things, or being concerned about the domestic currency actually uh, having problems. Um, uh, people worrying about inflation, in effect, and I think what Roger was saying then, more from a Chinese government perspective, what he was about to say before we lost him, was that the Chinese... Uh, that...
5: Roger's back.
3: Okay, so go ahead now. You were talking well, about... China, uh, China is uh, now,
5: what they're doing is they're enacting a long-term plan to get rid of their dollars and bonds. They want to secure, the instead, uh, commodities that they're going to need probably for the next 10 years, uh, they're collecting right now $50 billion a year on U.S. interest on bonds and treasuries, and they want to get this money out the door and buy everything they can get. They're building massive storage facilities for sugar, grains, and edibles. Uh, the wheat stocks have increased. The soybean stocks have increased. And the uh, 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 rap seed has gone up 60% as well. Uh, in addition, Jay, uh They're buying land everywhere in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. They've leased or bought 20 million hectares of farmland, which is slightly larger than all the land in Iowa and Illinois. They bought two huge copper mines in Peru, one in Afghanistan, and they're investing $3 in Afghanistan for access to copper, iron ore, gold, uranium, and gems, and they're after 1.5 billion barrels of oil. In addition to that, they invested $20 billion in Australian metal mining companies. They bought control, controlling interest in Rio Tinto for nearly 20000000000 billion. They're shutting down their own coal mines, and instead they're reserving that for themselves, and they're importing huge amounts of coal, and the prices on coal, of course, are going up because of that.
3: Okay, so the Chinese are saying, we're not sure we want to hold these dollars any longer. Is that the story here?
5: Absolutely. That's the big story, and the big story in the pits is they're buying it like crazy.
3: And at the same time, we hear, though, the Chinese are continuing to buy dollars by U.S. Treasuries, but at the short end of the yield curve.
5: Well, they're trading back from the long, the tens, and the thirties back in to the short term, the twos, threes, and fives.
3: Okay, so what you're telling me, Roger, if I'm understanding you, the inflation play is back on. Absolutely. At least for the moment. It sure is all right, well, thanks, Roger. I've got to turn to Lena now for uh, time considerations as well. Lena, are you there now?
6: Hello, Jay. I'm here
3: yes, you're there from Athens.
6: yeah, hello. great to be in the show again
3: thank you um How are Europeans feeling about the u s dollar these days, and how do you feel about the the, the buck?
6: I feel um as I written as well today in my article that the uh, although of the dollar was is, is still under pressure um you know we We may see that the uh, Um, the the slide will run its course soon and we might have holders of dollars soon enough because at the moment the main reason that we have dollar weakness everywhere is because of the risk appetite which has returned in the markets. I mean, down the days that, you know, we were buying the dollar as a safe haven currency, and now that the uh, investors are feeling better about the economy and, you know, the whole recovery comes back Traders feel that it's time to sell the dollar, and especially the, uh, one of the biggest stories today was the um, uh, Russian government is thinking of um, creating uh, its own currency. So, therefore, a lot of nations now thinking alternatives to the dollar as a main reserve of currency.
3: So they're looking to get out of the dollar and use their own currencies for trade. Is that what the story is?
6: Yeah, the, as the uh, Chinese was, um, have agreed to do with uh, the Brazilian, it was, it's, it's been said today that they're thinking of making another currency, and that will happen obviously in the next coming months. And that's what creating at the moment the dollar weakness, especially against the euro. And that's why the euro dollar broke on the upside, and now it's at, at 143 as we speak.
3: Well, Lena, what you're telling me sounds consistent with what we heard from Chen Lin and Roger exactly. Weaver just a moment yes. ago. Is that mm-hmm. the uh, you know people are now not you know the the, the risk aversion. Rate is, uh, is off and people are becoming uh, you know, more interested in taking on risk and uh, do you think this is sustainable though? Is this something that's going to last or are we seeing some sort of a bounce or a rally off of the massive decline that we saw last fall?
6: To me, Jay, it feels that it's a bounce back after the big uh, move that we saw from October, really. I mean, we saw the dollar stricken all across the board because everybody was buying it for safe currency. Now, it's natural. The way I see the chart and everything, we have to have this correction. So, in, in my mind, this is a correction for the dollar, and maybe in the coming months, the dollar will start gaining again. And talking with other traders, this is the field that we have across the market, that this is temporary, it just feels temporary, and the dollar strength may resume its course later on until the fall. I
3: see. Is there any uh, economic news coming out this week yet that we need to keep our eyes on?
6: Sure. Um, For sure, traders need to keep in mind that we have the payroll numbers this Friday, which uh, will be monitored heavily by traders all across the world, because we now that we talked about the recovery and about and Gaithner and Bernanke. everybody says that, you know, we are on the way to recovery. We need to see if that is justified, if actually we're going to see a better number and if less jobs are getting lost this Friday. And also for the Europeans, we've got the ECB rate decision, which, again, will be very interesting and very important for the Euro direction. Okay,
3: Lena, we've got to call it quits on that one now. We'll look to talk to you about it next week. You can feed us in on what's, uh, on what's taking place the rest of this week. Coming up next, folks, our special guest today is Michael Pansner, the author of Financial Armageddon and when Giants Fall he talks about the difficult economics uh, economic times ahead and how we all need to prepare for it so don't go away we'll be right back.
2: more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the nineteen thirties into wealth and prosperity a successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed by applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become too 201 case or worse. He is available to share his rare profit making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718 457 1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters.
1: Business Owners Speak fills a long-neglected niche in the national media coverage of American business. The myriad of challenges and opportunities facing small business owners and entrepreneurs are addressed at ground level in a positive, business-like manner. We face the realities of meeting payroll and being completely dependent upon the success of a business for which we alone are responsible. So loosen your tie, business owner. Bring along your own experiences and log on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Network
0: money. We love it, we hate it, and everything in between. You can be the master of your life and your own economics. Join Professor Lori Lomantia each week for the program Making Peace with Money. Lori will help you realize the power to create fulfillment in your life and shed new light on your money madness. You'll learn how to make peace with money and feel the joy and freedom renewed in your life. Making Peace with Money is broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Well, you load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper than dead. St. Peter, don't you call me, because I can't go I owe my soul to the company store.
2: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to jay Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the website for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. Now back to our program.
3: I am your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, welcome back. In 2000, uh, the stock market crash wiped out two-thirds of the value of the NASDAQ, and with it the hopes and dreams uh, for a prosperous retirement for the Americans. Uh, most of us are painfully aware of that experience. In 2002, Ben Bernanke wrote a paper titled Deflation, Making Sure It Doesn't Happen Here. He talked about the Japanese experience, the U.S. experience in the 1930s. The American economy at that time was showing signs of deflation, potentially, but Greenspan heeded Bernanke's treatment for this problem, and he printed money like never before. We had huge amounts of money pumped into the banking systems. The banks, flush with cash, lent out money very aggressively. They would lend out money... With little concern about whether it could ever be paid back, and they took their fees, their front-end fees, enjoyed themselves, and had great bonuses, and bought fancy houses in Long Island and elsewhere. Realizing back in 2007 that Bernanke's policies were going to be lethal, our special guest today, Michael Panzer, wrote a very prophetic book called *Financial Armageddon*, in which he all but predicted what was to come in September of last year. That that terrible uh, plunge of the markets that occurred after Lehman Brothers' failure last September. Now Michael has written a second book called When Giants Fall, in which he describes a new America, one that will be vastly different with a substantial decline in living standards, unfortunately. And I would just like to quote Michael in his book. He said, instead of looking forward to a return to the way things once were, Americans, and investors in particular, will have to get used to a new America, a new normal, where only those who are flexible, open-minded, resilient, and fully prepared for the worst will be able to survive, let alone come out on top. Those who refuse to take these threats seriously risk losing everything. Now more than ever, it is time to become attuned to an entirely unique, unique roadmap. Well, folks, that's really what turning hard times into good times is all about. We want to recognize what the real problems are as opposed to what the establishment is telling us, those problems are. We want to know what the real solutions are, and most of all, of course, we want to know how we can best protect ourselves. And uh, Michael, thanks for coming on, because I know you have some important things to tell us in that regard.
7: Well, Thanks for having me, Jay.
3: In Financial Armageddon, uh, which you wrote in 2007, it was, as I said, very prophetic. Uh, The events of last September put us on track to repeat, some would say, even possibly surpass the difficulties that our grandparents had in the 1930s. Do you think that what we are going through now will prove to be anything like the 30s, worse, or are some of us just being extremists?
7: Well, uh, certainly throughout history there's been plenty of uh, premature uh, top calling, and, and and I certainly can appreciate that. But the thing I think that is, many of your listeners probably realize, and I think others who have been following this sort of alternative press in particular, is that, you know they've shot a number of bullets along the way the federal reserve under alan greenspan had a tremendous impact on uh, uh on changing or pushing back forces that were already at play i saw an interesting commentary recently that suggested that uh you know the sort of fruits of our current uh sorrows go all the way back to the sort of you know reagan years i don't really want to put it in 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 um In political terms like that, but certainly it's been a long time in coming, and a lot of ammunition has been used to delay what I I think is really an an inevitable cleansing, and and, and at this point in time, there's not a lot we can do about it.
3: Well, I'd like to go back a little bit, and uh, some of the main topics that I picked up from your book, Financial Armageddon. You talked about debt, federal and otherwise, um, and then retirement systems. um, The retirement system is clearly in trouble. Government guarantees, derivatives. I'd like to talk. I'd like to just touch on some of those topics, if you don't mind. Could you just sort of give us a summary of what you talked about in terms of debt in your uh, in the debt chapter in your. Book.
7: Well, I think the number that I, I've seen and, and the number that sort of caught my eye, the graph that caught my eye that uh, uh, has been around for a number of years, I think one of the first to sort of uh, highlight it was a firm called Comstock Partners, but this idea of total debt, this if you add up the accumulated amount that the public sector and the private sector um, the individuals corporations governments etc put it all together and what is it equal to and and compare it to the size of the economy which you know realistically that makes sense the economy grows so debt levels would naturally grow well Mm -hmm. when i saw that the numbers had exceeded when i actually first started writing the the second book when i saw that they had exceeded the levels that we had seen in the early years of the depression i mean that certainly was enough to pique my interest um it, and, and again this was a was a record that it held for for decades um, so you know we had i think at the time i started it was something on the order of um, 2.7 times gdp mm-hmm. this uh, total credit market debt um, but in fact it's actually expanded since and, and it's Recently has been around sort of three and a half times. So you know you're talking about a 14 trillion dollar economy. Three you know three and a half times that is a uh, is, is a big number anyway you count it. But once you did a little bit of digging, you realize that there was a lot more in terms of overall obligations, and if I can say there's any one theme to that, you know, to my second book, it's it's the sum total of obligations, of exposure that everybody has and, and the system has, if you like. It's not just debt, but it's guarantees, it's, it's promises, it's obligations, it's everything that people have sort of, in a sense, put off to the future or uh, assumed that they would you know have the resources to, to handle but in fact uh they've uh, they they've gone way beyond what they're what they're capable of whether you're talking about governments or individuals and you know to give you one example um that I highlight is the, this notion of you know retirement related obligations now there's different levels to this, um whether you're talking about you know municipal governments you're talking about um, corporations, but just focusing on the one that most people are familiar with it's it's this idea of you know social security and Medicare taken together mm-hmm. i mean. The the estimates are all over the park, and there's a certain number of assumptions built into it. But anyway, you cut it, Um, it's an order of magnitude far, far greater than even the the level of debt that we are aware of, I mean the estimates run anywhere from sort of fifty five to seventy trillion dollars if you had to put that all in present value terms um, uh, obviously a lot of that comes down to uh, you know the the fast rising cost of, of health care and perhaps it won 't rise as much in the future. but the truth is it, it relates to the fact that um, we are on the hook to a bulging um segment of our population the baby boomers who are aging and going to be getting to the point where they uh are expecting to retire expecting to be looked after and uh, the money's just not going to be there so if you if you really wanted to sort of put it together as i noted it was this sense that no one had been paying attention so much to the overall picture. They had said they talked about, you know, high debt levels. They talked about problems with Social Security. They talked about, you know, the the sort of issue with, for example, companies were no longer giving employees pensions because it was getting too expensive. But if you actually added all these numbers together, you just, it was just a frightening picture. And to me, that was the uh, the essence of why um, why it had to end, why it couldn't last. Um I, think
3: I certainly can see that, Michael, but if we just go back and look at the debt, just the debt, never mind the off-balance sheet things you're talking about, the sure. promises and so forth. Uh, if you look at it, uh, I've seen a chart that shows debt growing exponentially almost and, you know, GDP growing in a linear fashion. It just, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to believe that that's got to end one day
7: well you don't and and I think and i and i 'm sure i'm going to mangle the quote, but um I think Einstein made some kind of a comment about the uh, the notion of uh of, of compound interest being one of the, of the wonders of the world, and 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 that's where you get to at this point. It's not just the debt level that matters; it's also the way the debt is growing with interest being tacked on. Now, you know, clearly in a low interest rate environment, um, it's it's less of an issue, but it's not it doesn't go away. Right. Um, and in fact, in, in my view, what we're we're doing here now is is creating artificially low short-term rates and building up this bulge of obligations, and one or eight eventually jump higher, which I believe they will, um, you'll suddenly find that uh, we have a sort of turbo effect as far as, uh, you know, the sort of interest compounding goes.
3: Well, talking about the entire system again, um, you know, debt and the off-balance sheet items that you were talking about, uh, economist John Williams, I think, has said that uh, he looks at those numbers and says, you know, if they taxed Americans 100% of their income, they would, it would not be enough. To meet all of the obligations is on the, either um, you know on the balance sheet or off the balance sheet.
7: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, to be fair, um, one, there will be adjustments. I mean, in my view, assuming that you know the worst case scenarios that I see don't come to fruition, and and I and I still think the odds are pretty good that I'm that I'm right in my uh, pessimism. But you know, you take the perspectives of. Um, what's going on in countries around the world is that people will raise the retirement age, for example. There will be less care for people who have money. Um, There will be less um, benefits overall. There will be a number of things that diminish the quality and the expectations um, surrounding what people you know thought they were going to get um, and you know one way or another that money is going to come from somewhere whether it comes in lesser benefits or it comes in no benefits or it it it, it results in you know far higher levels of taxation um, it's it's going to be resolved and and resolved painfully
3: well, you certainly uh are right about that we you're talking real really though about government obligations, I think we haven't really touched on the private sector. I mean, I just thought, as you were saying, there are going to be adjustments already, people, since the stock market crash of 2000, people that would be retiring or close to it now are thinking in terms of working into their older years.
7: Well, it creates a kind of a perfect storm scenario because, uh, you know, you, you have, the, I think other authors referred to this notion of a generational clash. I mean, suddenly you're going to have uh, older people who would normally uh, be exiting the job market, leaving openings for younger people, staying in because they have to. And not only that, they're going to be staying in a far, lo- far longer. They're going to, in a sense, and I, I don't want to generalize too much, but perhaps be a little bit more disgruntled that they are in this predicament. Um, And and meanwhile, you're going to have the sort of younger generation which feels that they didn't cause these problems, and yet their taxes are high because of this. They're having a hard time getting a job because of this. And their life is, you know, their standard of living is going to be adversely affected. It really does set up for some serious social problems down
3: the road. Well, you talk about the retirement obligations of Social Security, Medicare, Private pension funds, too, are something that, you know, I mean, individuals, now the government's picking up on the private pension failures.
7: Yeah, well, there's, you know, there's a, first of all, the thing to bear in mind is that the pension system has is, is clearly changed. I mean, the old-style systems, one of the reasons, for example, that GM has the problems it has now is, um, a, you know, defined benefit, um, they're dying away because they realized, at least in the, the private sector, in a way they haven't done, by the way, in the public sector, um, the costs were prohibitive, especially when people were generally living longer. So, you know, that that issue is already... Um, been been sort of self-resolved in some ways. The market has resolved it because companies have basically been scaling back and scaling back in terms of benefits that um, are are essentially very costly. Um, so what they've done is they've shifted a lot of the risk that used to be on co- corporate, uh, you know, on the corporate accounts um, to the individual accounts. And, and in fact, there was a book a while, called, a, a while ago called "The Great Risk Shift," and and I think that in essence sums it up. A lot of things that used to be the responsibility of companies and governments and, 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 and sort of safety nets, if you like, um, are be- being thrown onto the shoulders of individuals and, uh, and, and quite frankly, um, it's not been a fair trade-off and, and many people are gonna come up short.
3: Some people are coming up short. Some people are obviously benefiting from the system as well, a few number of people. We have an, an income distribution skewed towards a very small number of wealthy people as we used to see in third world countries uh, getting back to some of these guarantees, the government guarantees, we have FDIC, we have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, of course, now basically taken over by the government. Uh, bank guarantees, you know, the banks are being bailed out. And, and But something interesting that I picked up in your book that I wasn't aware of was Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, $100 billion a year, or at least $100 billion was spent after 9-11, I guess.
7: Yeah, well, it wasn't I mean it was commitments. Again, no. you know, have to you you do have to distinguish when you're yeah. talking about a guarantee between commitments or exposure sure. and actual cash outlays. Now, but the, the the truth is is that it's very easy for governments to promise like um, in the case of you know insurance backstop type programs like the the pension guarantee system, you know, where they receive a small amount of premiums up front which are really not calculated on an economic basis, but not having to pay out much in the early years. And it looks like they're flush, and, uh, and they're you know that they're running a, a fine operation that ultimately is bringing revenue into the government. But once the claims start rolling in, once those guarantees get translated into real risk, uh, that's when you get the sort of horror stories. And and I think that's the p- thing that people don't realize is that you know I, I noted the terrorism insurance issue because it was one of many different claims the government had essentially stumped up and said okay will provide the backstop that nobody else is. But it's never properly costed. It's never actually analyzed as it would in a, in a private market. So it, most of the time the premiums are too small, the uh, parameters are, are not well defined, and it ends up being a tremendous boondoggle. Now, as, as it happens, that one hasn't been um, very costly from the point of view of the government, but certainly other programs have. and and. Not only that, and the point I mentioned in the book, it's not just explicit guarantees that matter. It was implicit, and we saw that with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and we've seen that in essence with the entire financial system. They've essentially said that whether we like it or not, that some organizations, perhaps most organizations, are are, are too big to f- fail, with the, the obvious exception of, uh, of Lehman um, and, and, and Bear Stearns to a certain extent. Um, which you know, again, that just created this tremendous uh, level of, of, of sponsorship, and for lack of a better word, um, that the taxpayers are on the hook for.
3: You mentioned systemic risk in your book, and uh, I'd like to sort of ask you about that, but also derivatives. Uh, you know, in my view, at least looking at an individual transaction, you know, people have basically thought that derivatives reduced risk, and I, but I've often thought that everybody's thinking that. Gives, makes them bold to go out and do things that would otherwise not do that and maybe in fact what we've actually done with derivatives is increase the systemic risk. Would you agree with that?
7: Absolutely, and, and, you know, it comes down to um, a a number of factors. I mean, the first thing is is it was in the financial industry's interest to keep things very, very complicated, to keep a a lack of regulation or a lightly regulated uh, environment, to have a a system where nothing was really collated, nothing was centralized in the way that, say, for example, futures markets are. Uh, We're talking mainly about over-the-counter derivatives, by the way, which is which. Really, the focus um, of attention. Um, and, you know, the people could make a lot of money, but nobody knew what they were doing, why, why they were doing it, and they had great incentives to take risky very risky bets um, and leave the problem to somebody else so i mean it was like a recipe for people to uh it was a recipe for systemic uh crisis in essence and 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 again you know i put it as one of the sort of key uh components of this this coming crisis i saw because it was just another form of obligations it was something else that people were committing to and in some cases, perhaps organizations were committing to without even realizing it, um, that ultimately would come home to roost. And, and uh, to some great extent, we've seen it come home to roost in terms of the mortgage-backed market and, and the various uh, uh, alphabet soup-type names of, of different derivatives products. But there's still a whole uh, big house of cards still out there, uh, and we've yet to see the full fallout from that. I don't, I think.
3: All right, so what we're talking about are derivatives, not not those kind of derivatives, say the futures markets that, you know, futures in copper or gold or silver or something like that, but you're talking about those markets that are not quoted, those that are just traded sporadically or if they trade at all between between private institutions.
7: Right. I mean, they may trade very actively, or at least they did before markets, you know, went into a black hole. Um, you know, the, the the actual level of trading is not so important. But what you get with an organized exchange is you get transparency, you get people putting up sufficient margin, you get terms that are understood because they're consistent between counterparties. You know, you get all of these things that make it easier to manage risk. And even then. It's not a perfect system, but it's certainly a better system because of this transparency and because um, you know the total exposure. It's, you know it's a great way to evaluate systemic exposure because you know when what people's positions are in aggregate, and, and therefore you can sort of respond to it. What you don't have with the over-the-counter market, which is which is uh, du- is dramatically larger, um, is knowing where the bodies lie, who's got exposure, um, who is what kind of exposure there is, and and what kind of chains will be broken um, or upset if if one or more counterparty goes under, and that was, you know, again, my key concern, and, and to top it all off, I think the, 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 the ironic point of view, and you, you highlighted that, was this idea of, of distributing risk. Well, distributing risk is okay uh, to, a, to a degree. But if you get a uh, a big enough shock to the system, it's a bit like a spider web. You touch one part of the spider web, and, mm-hmm. and maybe nothing happens on the rest of the web. But you 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 slam one part of the spider web hard, and the whole rest of the web shakes. And I think that's what we've seen in terms of the global financial markets.
3: And we've certainly had some of the larger institutions having the lion's share of a lot of this derivative risk. Is that not the not the case? Absolutely. And, you know, J P you know, Morgan, the- for example, very very large.
7: Yeah, and, you know, they, the, the authorities and the company itself like to downplay their exposure, like to, you know, argue that it's either fully hedged, it's being managed with, you know, top-rate models, um, that a lot of it is netted out. Well, you know, the the truth is is that we've really not tested these ideas. Netting, for example, I mean, they may have, you know, uh X billion of exposure to one counterparty on the buy side and X billion on the sell side, but, you know, uh, First of all, once things get into a, a sort of legal model and there's differences of terminology, differences of maturities, um, differences of, uh, of other aspects of those contracts, what they thought was a net flat position may turn out to be a, a double. Position because you got to add both the long and the short exposure together. So I, I think in that respect, um, we're still not getting the, the getting the truth. Um, and and I feel like that that at some point down the road that will be the source of another yet another systemic type crisis.
3: Well, I think in some comments you made uh, earlier that basically there's dishonesty in in accounting in essence, and that leads me to just to tell our listeners next week we're going to have former Congressman. Uh, Dio Guardi is going to be with us, and he is the only CPA ever to be elected to Congress. And he's going to talk a lot about exactly what Michael talked about. Michael, I just uh, I gather from what you're saying that you're not you're not convinced that we're out of the woods yet. You think there's there's more downside here, uh, which leads me to another question. If, if that's the case, uh, in your book Financial Armageddon, you're suggesting that we're going to have a deflationary period followed by hyperinflation. Do you still do you still hold that view?
7: Well, in fact, that was uh what set my views apart from some of the other um, if you like doom and gloomers or or predictors who accurately saw problems from building up and and saw them ending badly but I don't think they paid attention to the to the reality I mean you were talking earlier on, I heard you about the you know the Fed had dumped tremendous amounts of uh of liquidity into the system well, a lot of that the liquidity was in in the form of credit and and it was always going to be the case that the initial phase, at least, of the credit unraveling was going to be deflationary because banks call in loans, so people have to sell assets to repay those loans. It's a, it's a pretty state straightforward process. My feeling, and the one that I, I subscribe to in the book and the one that set you know, my book apart from most of those other people, is that I felt that the response this time around was going to be different, and it wasn't going to be Great Depression 2.0, but in fact it was going to be academics and policymakers um, you know whether the whether through overconfidence or hubris or just you know, ignorance we're going to prove that they that we're not going to have that situation again and and i think that's what we're seeing now i think we've seen the uh the the, the makings of a a full-fledged hyperinflation um, uh, getting underway. Uh, I don't think we're quite in the the point where it's it's on the surface, but I think the government actions we've seen in terms of fiscal stimulus and in terms of monetary policy are laying the groundwork for um, authorities to eventually lose control of all these stimulation efforts and uh, and leading to a sort of heightened inflation expectations and and an inflationary spiral down the
3: Do you think we could have another deflationary scare before we get into uh, something worse on the the, uh, inflationary side, or do you think we've seen the worst of the deflation? In other words, if we get another – let's say there's some more derivative failures, some more implosions in the banking industry, is it not possible we might see – more downside in prices yet before what you're talking about the yes I do engine. and and
7: in fact you know people ask me my views on precious metals and I think for example we could see uh, them swept up in another uh, wrenching. Uh, uh, downturn um, as, as assets are liquidated. Um, I think there's a very strong possibility of that over the next sort of six to nine months. Um, and, and I think personally as a trader that you could buy gold cheaper, for example. However, um, I think we're in that area, and and I guess the, the analogy that comes to mind is where the sort of rivers flow into salt water, where you know, on the one side is the river, if you want to call that the sort of deflationary side, and the other side is the ocean, um, the salt water. and But the two are mixing together, so we're going to see some churn. We're going to see bits of one and bits of the other, but eventually that water is going to dissipate out into the ocean and it's going to be, uh, you know, the sort of um, the, the, the hyperinflationary uh, salty sea. And I don't know if that's the best analogy, but I think we're right in that – region now where the two meet mm-hmm. um, so it 's going to be sort of choppy and foamy and uh and not quite clear, but eventually it's all going to become uh, the, you know that fresh water's all going to dissolve into salt water um, sure. and that 's the way I see it playing out and time frame wise I think uh, you know it's always a little bit difficult because it's dependent on reactions from policy makers sure. and, and people but i i in my mind, I thought we'd see uh a pretty Decent early signals towards the end of this year to suggest that that next wave is is beginning, but uh, it's 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 not. I'm, I wouldn't say I, I have a high degree of confidence, but in my own mind, that's what I'm thinking.
3: We've only got about a minute left here, Michael, before we're out of time. I, I want to ask you: You talk about the need to adjust that we're going to have a new normal in America. Could you give our listeners just some sense of what this new roadmap is going to be like? How are people going to need to adjust? Uh, How can we protect ourselves and plan for this, uh, for this future?
7: Well, I think the main thing is, and and this is the one I'm sure that you've you've covered ground in your your program and and in your newsletters, is that people have to be preparing for something different. And, And in my mind, you know, the theme of the new book is the fact that I believe the U.S. government's role in the world is changing, changing for the worse. That has a number of implications. It means that the dollar's role is going to change. It means the world is going to become more unstable. It means that socially there's going to be more instability. It means there's going to be more difficulties in terms of globalization. At the same time we also have, you know, resource issues, constraints like peak oil, for example. I don't know whether you buy that or not, but I think we're at a point where resources are going to be there's gonna be competition. Sure. So you're gonna have competition and you're gonna have the sort of the eight hundred pound gorilla of the US is going to be in a much more vulnerable place. And that lays the groundwork for tremendous instability and for people to think, uh, the world is not gonna be like it used to be and I better rethink where I live, how I live, how I invest and and what I'm going to do with my life uh, in that kind of an environment.
3: Sure. Certainly for Americans, we've been accustomed to a high living standard, higher than most of the rest of the world for sure. Michael, I want to thank you so much for coming on today uh, with us. Uh, We sure could talk on for a lot longer. Could you give our listeners some sense of how they can learn more about your work? Do you have a website that they can go to?
7: Sure, I have two. I mean, the original site is uh, financialarmageddon.com, and I also have one, economicroadmap.com. You know, the former is really focusing uh, more on the U.S. and domestic side of things. The, the latter is really this the broader big picture in the world itself, how it's going to change.
3: Well, thank you very much, Michael. Uh, folks, I'll be back here for the fil- uh, for the final segment today. I'm going to talk a little bit about... What I think you need to do, uh, we are enjoying a resurgence in the commodity trade and the inflation trade, if you will, but I'm very concerned about some of the things Michael talked about. We'll be right back.
2: To know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity a successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed by applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000 while the stock market has lost nearly half its value He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters.
1: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. When you load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day, older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store.
2: You're listening to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the website for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. Now back to our program.
3: Welcome back. Uh, I am Jay Taylor, your host, and also the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. You can uh, learn more about my newsletter at miningstocks.com. And we certainly are having a a good year so far this year. We're up 53%. Uh, led by the uraniums, 139% higher. Energy 83% up. gold, uh, The gold juniors, the exploration companies, are up 87% on average so far this year. And the producing mines are up 47%. But we're not resting on our laurels. We remember very well what happened last summer when we were having a nice rally. We were doing very well. And then all of a sudden with the Lehman Brothers collapse in the fall of of last year, uh, everything fell off the table and we ended up losing almost 50% of our value by the end of the year. So we want to avoid that happening. We are very much concerned that we could be replaying the same kind of pattern that took place in the 1930s, in fact, where there was a big plunge down in 1929, a strong rally that lured everybody back into the market, and then the really big decline occurred after that. and really, if you look at the basic fundamentals uh I'm not convinced that that we are on to any kind of sustainable rally, as uh, Lena suggested uh, she's in agreement with as well, and I think Michael Pansner too uh, If we look at our inflation deflation watch that's a an index if you will, that I set up that has some seventeen different variables that's geared to trying to Understand which way the global economy is going. We certainly are on the upsurge. In fact, we're at the highest levels we've been since just before the Lehman Brothers collapse last fall. That's at 131.18 and we were as high as 145 at one point in time, then all the way down to 100 with last year's collapse. So we certainly are enjoying an inflation trade as our, uh, as our model portfolio is up so nicely, 53%. But again, we want to avoid anything like what we went through last year. Uh, How are we going to do that? Well, one of the things I'm doing is I'm watching and keeping track very much of the work of um, uh, Dr. Robert McHugh, and I'll be talking about that in just a moment. Why am I concerned? Why am I convinced, not convinced, that this rally is for real? Well, if you really look at what's going on now in the economy, they're pumping huge amounts of money into the system, But so far, it's not really doing too much. Yes, we're starting to see a rally in the commodities markets. My view is that we're seeing the professionals playing this game. We're seeing fund managers that have to put their money to work, jumping back into the market for fear that if they miss the rally, they'll lose their jobs. You're having hedge funds now speculate again in commodities. But this is not money that's making its way out into the masses, into the grassroots of the economy. In fact, I think that's the real problem is the American consumer, which had been the engine of the world, the engine of the global economy, if you will, because Americans were spending way beyond their means, because they were spending way beyond their numbers, and it was a phony spending. It was a spending that was created because Alan Greenspan pumped money into the system. that gave them the ability to consume today at the expense of tomorrow, and now we're at that tomorrow time frame in which Americans don't have the wherewithal to spend, and banks won't lend even though there's money pumped into the system. They will not lend because, well, let's face it, they're looking around, they're saying, which consumers can pay me back? And there aren't many, percentage-wise, that can pay them back. So credit cards are being taken away at the same time. We're seeing five, six hundred, 600, 700,000 uh, jobs lost each month. And will the jobs come back? Well, I don't see how, frankly. If I look at some of the numbers, the profit numbers, astoundingly, the s&p 500 earnings are now lower they've plunged 90% that's more than th- the earnings of the stock market plunged during the 1930s in pe ratio terms the equity market is selling at the highest ever right now i mean it's just it's just amazing and why would companies go out and hire people if their profits are plunging so that's i see the va- the very basic fundamentals do not really suggest that we're on to something something really promising here. Instead, what I think we see is a phony rally, a phony rally that in part is also driven by the Chinese. Chen Lin talked a little bit in our first segment today about how China is uh, is lending money. They're lending more money. Uh, in the first quarter, Chen was saying they lent more money out uh, than they lent for almost the entire year last year, or almost as much money the first quarter in China as for the entire year. This is causing a bubble in China that is also driving the world markets and causing speculative rise, I would say, in energy and other, uh, and other commodities. So what we have is a global economy that is more and more managed by central planners and less managed and less free markets. And if you don't have free markets, you don't have a sustainable economy because – The markets can make decisions efficiently that governments can never make. To think that a group of men sitting around a big oak table can decide how many pairs of shoes should be made or even what the interest rates should be better than what the markets can determine is just foolhardy. I mean, we should know this as Americans. We should understand this as people who have, if we were brought up with free market economics, if we were taught in school, we would understand that. But, of course, we have not been taught free economics in school. Free market economics have been taught. Keynesian economics, which is really leading people uh, to the central planners, to the notion that governments know better than the markets. And this is something you'll hear expressed, and we are hearing expressed, and we're seeing laws passed. We're seeing uh, government actions that are suggesting that that Free markets don't work. Well, if markets don't work, it's because they have not been free for the most part for quite a, quite, quite a period of time. Um, so where are we now? Well, I'm really very concerned that we are going to face another decline in the equity markets because of those fundamentals that I just talked about. But I would also say that um, Dr. Robert McHugh's work, which has been very spot on in the longer term, yes, day to day for sure, he doesn't always get it right, nor does he pretend to, nobody can. He's always talking in probabilities. But when we look at uh, the longer-term picture, Dr. McHugh is now looking at a B rise up. A, a, uh, uh, we, had the, we had the A leg down last year in the fall. We had this, this major decline. We're getting a natural bounce back, as Lena Moncerides was suggesting a while ago, that this is a natural bounce up in the, in the equity markets, in the commodity markets. But without the sustainability and the retail demand from consumers, You know, from a fundamental point of view, I don't see how this can be sustained. And so Dr. McHugh's work suggests the A leg down, which we've gone through, we're towards the end now, he thinks, of a B leg correction. That is an upwards correction in the equity markets, in the commodity markets. And quite frankly, what we're seeing right now in the commodity markets is everything that I would have expected based on McHugh's work. And not only McHugh, but we can talk about other people that we've had on this show, like Ian Gordon, uh, Bob Hoy, and others We're really looking, I think, at another very major decline down, and Michael Pansner also more or less agreed with that uh, a few minutes ago when we talked to him, that we're likely to see or could very well see another decline, very substantial decline, and then he sees hyperinflation. That remains to be seen. I'm not convinced of that yet. In any event, it looks like we're running, almost running out of time. I did want to mention a stock that I, a gold stock, and by the way, if we get deflation, gold stocks do extremely well, as Bob Hoy pointed out. There's a company called Palangelo Exploration, trades on the Toronto Exchange, PX TGXPF on the pink sheets, 30 cents. I really love this as a speculative play. They're online with, next to Ghana's largest gold mine, 30 million ounce project. I think the geologists have figured out the geology. This looks like one, if you want to put a few dollars away in a speculation, TGXPF, it's Palangelo Exploration's. Uh, you can learn more about my newsletter. Go to MiningStocks.com. We have special uh, rates for Chen Lin, Roger Wiegand, and myself. If you call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, that's Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426. You can go to WeBeatTheStreet.com to learn more about Roger's work, and as I said, uh, MiningStocks.com to learn more about my work as well. Chen Lin is also offering a $39 one-month one special Chen has had some very, very, great picks, and uh, we think you're going to want to know more about Chen. Next week, I hope you'll be back. We're going to have former Congressman Joseph Dioguardi with us, the only CPA ever to be elected to Congress, and he's going to talk about how the government is routinely using Enron-like accounting to deceive the American public. Of course, the Enron guys went to jail. Our congressmen don't. We have to vote them out, folks. I hope you'll be with us. Congressman DiAguardi will provide some great insight into what is wrong with our government and what needs to be done to fix it. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
2: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor.